Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. I don't view politics on a continuum or a single spectrum. And there are many things that I think are problematic in both camps. And so ultimately my conclusion then, and even more so now, when you got down to it, you know, they both would say polar opposite things potentially, and particularly in the last couple decades. But when you looked at the actual behavior and decisions they made, it's the same crap. All right, folks, today we had a very fun guest. I think you will enjoy this interview. The guest was Tigered Mayor Jason Snyder. Mayor Snyder is actually a close friend of mine. Obviously, we serve in local elected office in the same jurisdiction, and he's a fascinating guy, a fascinating figure in Oregon politics. His professional background is he is a healthcare administrator for Kaiser Permanente and has kind of worked his way up that ladder. At the same time, he's been working his way up the city ladder. So he started on the planning commission, the budget committee in Tigard, became a city councilor, and then ultimately was elected mayor of the city of Tigard. He's got a background as a EMT. He served as a reserve police officer in the city of Tigard. And in this episode, he talks about a little bit of the origin of his time in public service. He's interesting for a few reasons. One is because he is a proudly non-affiliated voter. He's not a member of either of the two political parties. And as Alex was saying after the interview was over, he's got a very populist bent to him that comes out strongly in this interview. He's also notable on a statewide level for a couple of reasons. He's chair of the Metropolitan Mayors Consortium, which is an organization that represents basically all of the mayors from Portland to Beaverton to Hillsborough, Lake Oswego, West Lynn, Canby, Gresham, all this mayors have sort of created this group and he's the current chair. He's also on the board of the statewide Oregon Mayors Association for all the municipalities in the state. So he brings that perspective to the conversation as well. Alex, we covered a lot of ground. We went policy wonk. We went campaign hack. What stood out to you in the interview? Yeah, it was a really interesting interview. And the thing that I enjoyed the most was more so the sort of philosophical questions. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about national issues, local issues, et cetera. But we've really only had like three guests now, including the mayor of folks who are actually dealing with these on a day-to-day basis, like very locally elected officials. And I mean, it's funny because, you know, we obviously have had Stan and Mayor McQuinston who are conservative. And then we had Mayor Snyder, who I would say I would consider at least to be center left or left wing. And they're both very much in agreement that like a lot of these issues in terms of partisanship and things like that are overblown. Uh, At least that's what they said when they had joined the podcast. And I just thought it was interesting because clearly people at the local level are thinking much more about how to find common ground and actually address issues than rather just kind of score political points. So yeah, I thought it was really interesting. We get really nerdy, also really philosophical and also cover politics. But what did you think of the interview? I think Mayor Schneider is a fascinating guy. Obviously, I, I nerd out a little bit in the housing section because I think he brings a wealth of knowledge from the local experience that can kind of help us figure out where to go on a state level to address the affordable housing crisis. And we talk a little bit about homelessness as well. So I think that's an interesting portion. And then at the end, I ask him, what do mayors want from the next governor? And I think that was perhaps the most entertaining answer of all. So folks should stick around for that. And he gave out his personal cell phone number, which was wild. He did. He's a very accessible guy. So if you want to reach out to the mayor, uh, he welcomes it. 
So before we jump in, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who's subscribed and continues to follow our work. We've continued to grow pretty quickly. Alex, I think we're at over 13,000 downloads just on audio format alone. So when you add in the YouTube, we're probably getting close to 15,000 total. Yeah, um, we've definitely broken 15,000. So wherever you're listening, whether it be on YouTube or Audible or Spotify or Apple or Google, thank you. And please remember to subscribe. And if your platform allows for ratings, um, we appreciate it. Alex, we did get, I don't read the comments or the ratings, but you do. There is some gentleman out there who's deeply unhappy with what he described as uptalk. Can you tell us? Was our only, was our only one star. It was we have a one star rating. So if you like our podcast, we need you to fight back against the one-star rating from this gentleman who really does not like the uptalk, which do we just- This is the only time we'll ever encourage you to fight in the comments section. <laughs> yes, please defend our honor in the comments section and give us a five-star rating. Titus, anything to add before we jump into the interview? Nope, let's dive right in. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. All right, Mayor Jason Snyder, Mayor of Tigard, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, and thank you both for having me. Well, we're excited. I think you are the first, or certainly the highest-ranking non-affiliated elected official that we've ever had on the podcast. In fact, I was thinking about this before the episode started. You may be one of the highest-ranking non-affiliated elected officials in the state. I was trying to think through most of our elected leaders are a member of one of the two parties. And in Oregon, obviously, most of those are Democrats. So we do have a few questions about partisan status and, and all that. But before, before we do that, can you give us a little bit of background on how you stumbled into local government service? Was this something that you always had your eye on or did an opportunity arise? How did that all happen? You know, I've told this story a number of times because it does get asked, like, how, to, how did you end up being the mayor of Tigard? And for me, you know, it starts way, way, way back. And we'll probably talk about this as you're questioning about my non-affiliated voter status as well. I started in, I would say, local politics a long time ago, like when I was in high school. I served on the school board. I was the student school board member in the school district I grew up in for two years in a row. I was only supposed to serve, I was honestly supposed to be the, the alternate the first year and the primary senior in high school that was supposed to be the board member. She got mono about a week into school and she never <laughs> went to a single, I don't think she ever went to a single meeting. So I basically <laughs> served two full years, one as the alternate and then one in the designated role. And during that time, I was very active. I, uh, my approach even back then, which was a long time ago, you know, we're talking 20, 20 years ago, plus, you know, I, I was visiting every school in the district. I was more active and visible in the community, frankly, to the leaders in the school district, uh, more than the adult board members, I would say. <laughs> And I went, you know, I drafted some legislation, went to the state capitol at the time. This is not in Oregon. This is in the state I grew up in and, you know, was pushing for some, what I thought was some pretty obvious and appropriate reform to some of the property tax rules in that state. And it, you know, never passed in the legislature, but, you know, I met with, at the time, the state superintendent of schools and, you know, really pushed 
those kinds of activities and was just very engaged. So that's a long way of saying that I've always been involved and I've always had a, a job and a role in, in more of a public service type of way, whether it's working as an EMT or a paramedic. I served as a reserve police officer in the city of Tigard for a number of years. I was then on the city's budget committee and then on then the chair of the budget committee and then became a city councilor in 2013, January of 2013, and served until 2018 as a city councilor and city council president, and then became mayor in 2019. Does that cover it that's, for you? That's perfect. So, so the, the main takeaway there is you've worn lots of hats at the local government level. You know how cities work. Um, before we get into city issues, can you tell us why you haven't registered as a member of either of the two major political parties and why it's been important for you to stay small I independent? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, some people may mistake this for like not being engaged or interested. Obviously, what I just shared in my background, that's not the case. And, and I've never missed voting in a single election ever. So I voted in every election since I turned 18. And I pride myself on both being engaged and involved and knowing what's going on, paying attention. You know, that's probably a little easier as a mature adult. You know, it's more challenging, I think, when you're younger. And it's probably more challenging now than I had filtering through all the sort of trash information that's available on the internet. I didn't really have to deal with that when I was 16. Honestly, the the internet didn't exist until, at least in a way I was aware of, until I was in college. So my decision to not ever choose a party had a lot more to do with what I saw, even in my early years, that I felt like was not particularly functional about the two-party system. As I sort of journeyed through college at Willamette University, which was pretty because of its proximity to the state capitol, there was a lot of involvement and engagement there. You know, at the time, Governor Kitzhaber would have lunch in our cafeteria most of the time because I think the food, well, not I know, not because I think, I know why, because we would <laughs> ask him. It was because the food was better in the <laughs> University cafeteria, and it's only, you know, a block away. So it was a, you know, that was a common sighting. And I just share all that for context and say that, Ultimately, my conclusion then, and even more so now, is that if you look, I mean, you can cut all the rhetoric out. I don't listen to rhetoric, particularly. I care a lot more about people's actions and behavior. And, you know, certainly maybe accepting the last, like giving an exception to the last four years or five years before that time, I could not detect any actual difference in actions when you got down to it between the two major parties. You know, they both would say polar opposite things potentially, and particularly in the last couple decades. But when you looked at the actual behavior and decisions they made, it's the same crap. So, so, so I don't want to be I don't want to be part of that, and and I don't that and so that's part of it. Ben, let me let me say a little more too. Sure, I don't view and my wife and I have had a lot of conflict over this over the years, but I think we've gotten to a good a good understanding in place, and that is that I don't view politics on a continuum or a single sort of spectrum from. Uh, 
from conservative to liberal. Um, I view it much more like if you're thinking about it in a mathematics arrangement, it's more like a, you know, six by six matrices, not, not a, you know, a single line continuum. And when you talk to people about their beliefs and their perspectives, they're not particularly divided about things. Um, and you'll find people that are very conservative that have very, you know, particularly at a local level, very uh, perhaps progressive ideas about how they think things should be done or need to be done in their local community and vice versa. And so I just, I, I've never accepted it in its current form uh, that is sort of believed by many people or the way the media portrays it. I just think it's a bunch of garbage. So real, real quick follow-up on that. Um, and I know you, you and I are friends, so I know uh, more than our listeners will, but uh, saying you're not an, a, a non-affiliated voter or an independent doesn't necessarily mean you're equally Republican and equally Democrat in your how you would fall on traditional issues like you know pro-choice or LGBT issues or environmental conservation or business issues or tax issues. Um, so, do you find yourself aligning uh, more generally with uh, groups of people, or do you really take it issue by issue, or how do you see yourself fitting into the matrices that you've described here? Well, I really do take it issue by issue, and you were you were kind of headed in the direction that resulted in you know multi decades disagreements with my spouse about uh, <laughs> you know the, the way the the way to look at the world uh, politically. But I really do take it issue by issue, and and there are many things that uh, I think are problematic in in both camps, and so I I really don't think of the world or the problems or the solutions in those kinds of ways. I think of them much more about what is the right decision to make. That's the other thing I really don't like about the two-party system in particular is this alignment around, you know, you've got to be all this way or all that way, or you're somehow, you know, alienating the people that elected you because you made that decision. And now, you know, people are going to come after you for it. Like, I don't, I don't ever want to get engaged in that about my beliefs. I want to do what the right thing is, regardless of what some particular group thinks. I'm happy to defend my uh, decisions and perspectives, um, and I don't I don't have concerns about that. I do the right thing be, for the right reasons and do the most I can or the best I can for the most number of people, which is what being a good leader is about. Um, and and that's what's important. And you know, like the sh there's been some shenanigans in the last, I think, couple of weeks at the, the Oregon State Legislature where people are being, you know, you know, sort of pushed because they support something that seems pretty logical. Not seems is pretty logical. I would conclude that. And because they're a part of a particular party, um, you know, they're getting hammered over that. That's that kind of stuff is just ridiculous when you think about what needs to happen from a, a good governance perspective and all this infighting about, you know, who who got a win or who didn't get a win or did you give the other side something like I just I'm, I'm never going to be supportive of that kind of approach. 
Spoken like a true pragmatist, <laughs> Alex. I, I was going to say that this this whole podcast is about me getting wins against Ben. So uh, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you're the right fit there. Or I'm just kidding. Well, you'll you'll uh, have to just you'll have to decide. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Mayor, and I actually have a follow up question, which is sort of in the vein of uh, what I would say is like a broader theme that you were just talking about. But first, to kind of cue myself up for that question, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was your your response in the city of Tigert's response to COVID. And specifically, the reason that I want to ask this is because we've had two other mayors on this podcast, Mayor Kerry McQuinston, who is running for governor as a Republican, and then also Stan Pulliam, who's the mayor of Sandy, who's running for governor as a Republican as well. Before I get to what I'd say is my main question, would you mind just talking, can you just kind of give us an overview of Tigard's general response to the crisis? I know that Tigard is one of the largest cities in Oregon. I think it's the 10th largest city, if I'm not mistaken. And kind of what you saw also as your role of mayor in terms of public health and kind of combating the crisis. Well, the, our response... First, I guess what I will say is that that's a that's going to be a long answer. I'll try to you know summarize it. But what we've done uh, through the last couple of years, trying to respond to COVID and keep our community uh, where it needs to be, has not been something I can put in a you know thirty second answer. But I will say that we've had multiple rounds of. Uh, sort of financial support for local businesses. We've had multiple rounds of support for community members. That's taken both the form of helping nonprofit organizations in our community who are already doing important work or or started doing important work. Uh, Packed with Pride was an example. That's one organization Ben was involved in, uh, both leading, starting, and making it happen. Um, Those were super important efforts. We've also supported uh, individuals in our community with relief from uh, utility bills and also from utility bill increases. So we delayed increases in our utility rates for uh, a number of months uh, and then had a big debate about how to move forward and how to continue helping. I think what we found is that the needs sort of, they really do continue. On the employee front, you know, we've done a lot to try to support our employees to keep them safe. There's been a, a lot of remote work that's been happening, but many city functions can't work as remote work. You know, you can't mm. you can't fix a water line or uh, respond to a you know a crime uh, remotely. Well, you kind of can if you just need to take a report, but you know you can't respond to an active crime in progress by calling someone on the phone. So, you know, we've we have taken a lot of action. That's what I would say at a a high level summary. And we continue to do so. We're at tomorrow night's council meeting are continuing to evaluate or reevaluate what the needs of our local businesses are. Every time there's a new variant and the dynamics change again, um, we have to reevaluate and then adjust and, and or add programs to help support the needs of our community. Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to ask this is because, uh, so kind of the uh, the thesis of our podcast is that national issues are just really totally overtaking local ones. Uh, but I think that the, the sort of interesting thing about COVID is that that is true to an extent in terms of that COVID is everywhere, everybody's having to respond to it, no matter if you're on the local level or if you're the president of the United States. But also 
the response, uh, you know, from each different city has been so different. And it's also caused uh, some local decisions that I would really say to shoot up to the national, right? Like, for example, we, as I was telling you, we interviewed Stan Pulliam. Uh, Stan got, I wouldn't say a full feature because that would be too much, but like he got a pretty significant amount of a profile in the New York Times for his response to COVID in Sandy, Oregon, which is basically, you know, businesses are going to stay open, masks are optional, uh, and, and, and sort of things like that. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm curious of, of your thoughts on, because of course you were mayor before COVID, COVID had happened, is, uh, you know, do you think that in terms of kind of bringing back local controls over issues, uh, you know, has, has that gotten better during COVID in terms of that, you know, you're really able to focus on uh, kind of what you think is, is best for Tigard and it's kind of drowning out some of those other issues or uh, maybe you don't even agree with my thesis that the national is sort of overtaken the local because of course you are a mayor, but just kind of curious of your general thoughts on that. It's an interesting question and I might need to give that more thought. Um, you know, we, the city is not in, and so when you say some of the things you just described, uh, cities in Oregon are not responsible for public health. And, you know, those, I, I take our responsibilities and the roles of various government agencies very seriously. Um, and so, for example, our role from my perspective in the public health arena was really around communicating and helping to communicate and facilitate messaging. Mm -hmm. uh, we have connections and networks and ways to connect with our community to get information distributed and out to people. And we did that very effectively, but um, you know, we were not, be, because cities are not designated with public health authority responsibilities, we were not making decisions about uh, that are public health decisions. It's not our role. We don't have the expertise. I might have the expertise because I work in healthcare full-time and have a master's degree from a medical school, but the city doesn't and the people in the city don't and they, they don't have that expertise. So we don't have the staff to be making those kinds of decisions. We have emergency management staff uh, and they helped with some of our coordinating, some of our response. And when we needed, you know, for example, a pallet of, at-home tests as the Omicron surge was happening, like we can, we can get those and we can make that happen and we can make decisions as an employer, but it's not our role to make uh, broad public health decisions and what may be, um, you know, interesting fodder for the New York Times uh, in Sandy, Oregon, uh, where, you know, you have a leader who's making decisions that are not within their authority um, I guess that makes interesting, you know, media stories, but I don't really find that really related to real life much. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and in fact, one of the things I think we've talked about this before, one of the things that really is concerning me, in fact, it might have been on the Stan episode, is this emerging trend of local jurisdictions, whether they be cities or counties, essentially saying, well, we're going to choose which laws, which requirements, which mandates we follow, whether it be, you know, gun sanctuary laws or public health laws or educational laws. At some level, we all have to decide that we live together in the same system of governance and we have to follow the rules and the laws. And if they don't apply equally to everyone, then there's a deep, deep problem with our system. Um, but I'm on my soapbox, so I don't need to go any further there. 
Well, I think, I mean, I think that the way to work through those things, if, if a group is concerned about the way, the way a certain uh, part of a government entity or a particular government entity is acting, that, that, is, that, that is what the judicial system is for. And, and, you know, if there's really some dispute, that's where it should be solved. And, you know, barring that, I think that the agencies that are tasked with, or the entities of government that are tasked with certain responsibilities, they've had those responsibilities for decades, typically, or more. Um, and they have professionals who know what they're doing. And they should be allowed to do that. And if there's some dispute about their legal authority to do so or something, that should be addressed in the courts. That's why we have them. So um, I want to pivot to another complex policy issue. Um, did, did Alex get his, did he ever get his question answered or do, do I, I'm not facilitating this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, you know, having someone in well, between. Th- th- Alex thank you for I, checking in. Yeah, it's so. a good facilitation. We, we need it. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Uh, I, I think that you did. I we have we do have a question about running for local office at the end, which I will uh, also ask a, a follow up on in terms of localism. But, okay, but <laughs> Ben, right. please. So, um, according to the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center, uh, which is uh, they conduct public opinion research, uh, two of the top three issues, according to Oregonians, are affordable housing and the homelessness crisis. And I've been thinking about this a lot, as I'm sure you have, and I think most Oregonians have, and it's a, it's a challenging issue on a lot of fronts. And in Tiger, just in Tiger, for example, we definitely have uh, um, homeless citizens living in Tiger, in and around Tiger. They're not Tiger, they're not necessarily Tiger citizens. They might uh, move throughout the region, throughout across state lines even. Um, we have affordable housing, senior affordable housing that is uh, nearing the end of basically its contractual obligation to stay affordable. So there's a a large group of seniors in the city who might be on the verge of being forced out of affordable housing, which could be a big challenge. Um, We have a lot of new homes being built in a portion of Tigard, but none of those homes would be considered affordable housing. I know there are some affordable housing projects that are popping up throughout the city. Um, So in some ways, the cities are kind of at the center of the housing and homelessness crisis. Um, but the challenge is, from, from what I can see, is if you do, let's say you do homeless services really, really well in Tigard, but you do that in a vacuum without coordination among neighboring cities, particularly Portland, but even Beaverton, Hillsboro, and others, um, then really what you're doing is adding an additional burden to the taxpayers of Tigard uh, and basically attracting more people to come into the city uh, with a smaller tax base than if you address it regionally. So I was hoping you could talk through, how do you think about a city approach to housing and homelessness? Um, how do you coordinate with partners? And you know, obviously we haven't seen a widespread uh, strategy that's widely broadly agreed upon by leaders in the region. So what do you do in absence of that? That's a huge question I ask. I always do this, I ask three I, questions. I was gonna say, are you wanting to ask a podcast question or start <laughs> a, a two day symposium on houselessness? Why don't you riff on that? I mean, let's start with the, the, the city issue. You're one city in a broader region. So how do you approach an issue like housing well, that's inherently bigger than that? Well, so first of all, the houselessness uh, issues and challenge, actually both of these issues, but particularly the houseless issue 
has to be addressed on a regional basis in a coordinated way. There is no way to do that locally and have it just be uh, by itself successful for some of the reasons you described and many more that we didn't that weren't mentioned. Um, and so, and I will also say that we do have, we have traditionally had homeless members of our community that have been homeless for a long time. And for a long time, probably, you know, up through maybe 2014 or 2015, I would say, um, in downtown Tigard, for example, those individuals kind of lived in a symbiotic relationship with the business owners. They knew each other. The homeless folks would actually kind of watch the businesses and, and report things when needed to be. And, and the businesses would sort of turn an eye and help support them, let them go to the, you know, use the restroom, use electricity. It was really kind of a, you know, it was in a, in a state of homeostasis, so to speak. And, uh, you know, things have certainly changed, escalated and, and, became more of a public health challenge related to houseless issues, just the number of people. Um, that's being caused by changes in uh, so many different things, including population and net migration into the state. Um, you know, many would say our housing uh, needs are not, are not, being, uh, not being addressed and built fast enough. We have not had uh, or supported the types of housing that might be more affordable. Uh, we have, you know, if, if you're in private industry, you want to maximize profit. That's what you're into. And so your decision making is going to be about building houses that make the most money. And that not that is not necessarily uh, targeting or supporting people that uh, are of lower means. And, and that's a challenge because all those people need to work, the, all those people that work doing many jobs that, that don't pay a lot need to live somewhere. And so, you know, we, I guess I will also share that, you know, we've made decisions as a region for a long time that predate um, both of you being born and almost probably predate me or right around from when I was born. And those are policies around the way we manage growth in Oregon and particularly in the Portland metropolitan area. You know, we do not have urban sprawl and there's a reason for that. That was a conscious policy decision made. But what that does do is drive up the cost of land and housing in the urban core and the immediate surrounding areas. And, you know, that is a market dynamic that's not going to be changed. It's a supply and demand thing, unless we're going to literally go to a, you know, complete governmental control of the means of production, which is never going to happen in this country. And I wouldn't argue is even a good thing. But if we're not going to go to that, then we're dealing with market driven forces. But the decisions made about growth were not market driven. They were desires for the way we wanted to see growth happen, and the market then reacts to that. And so, so yeah. let, let me ask you this then. You, I'm sure, uh, if, I mean, your constituents are my constituents, or at least half of my constituents are your constituents. Um, people are talking about affordable housing in Tigard a lot. 
if someone goes to you and says, Mayor, we need more affordable housing in Tigard, um, we need to do something about this, what can Tigard do? Absent a statewide policy shift or you know money coming in, or the, is there is there anything that a yeah. municipality can do? There certainly is on the affordable housing side, and let's talk about that. Let's dig into that a bit. Um, I will say, and I think it's an important distinction, houselessness and affordable housing, while they may be related in some ways, those are not the same issues. Agreed. Agreed. And they're not they're not even necessarily caused exactly. I mean, there may be some overlap between them, but they're not. One is not a direct cause of the other per se. Um, and so I want to draw that distinction pretty clearly. On the affordable housing front, there are lots of things that local jurisdictions can do. Um, things that Tigard has been very successful at are making the uh, making the construction of all housing, which can include affordable housing, more predictable and less risky for developers, whether they are a you know nonprofit wanting to build affordable housing, like the you know Community Partners for Affordable Housing. That's an example of one that has has and is doing projects in Tigard. Red Rock Creek Commons was just opened in the last year. That's a SEPA project, but we've got many others. The Pathfinder is about to open. That's in the Tiger Triangle as well. What we've done in the Tiger Triangle is made it much, uh, much more predictable for developers. So the property is basically, when they buy it, is already entitled. As long as they follow the rules, the project will be approved. And that's different than land use in other parts of Tigard and frankly in other parts of the state and in other jurisdictions. So Can I, real quick on that, why not make that apply everywhere? Is there is there a reason why you would want to have the ability as a municipality to deny um, applications or to not have that level of predictability for developers? Well, the, que the question is about wh what you want to do around zoning and density and things like that. In the Tiger Triangle, it's been a very underdeveloped area that is a town center and is supposed to be very dense. So it's easy to make that decision there. You know, you set a form-based code that says, as long as you meet these requirements, the way it looks and the way it's designed, it will be approved. If you were to say that in my neighborhood or your neighborhood, Ben, you know, what, what would that mean? Are we going to allow, you know, someone to assemble four quarter acre properties and build a, you know, 15 story commercial structure in the middle of your neighborhood? Like that, that's the kind of problems that would come from that. So you, you can't, uh, at least from my perspective, that, that would be a problem and not, not something we would necessarily want to see. And frankly, the infrastructure wouldn't support it. So, you know, the roads, the roads in your or my neighborhood or the infrastructure, whether it's stormwater, sewer, water, those are not built to meet those needs, which is we, we've constructed the triangle, the Tiger Triangle to do that. So we, you know, we want to see that kind of development. And it's basically a blighted, a blighted area that's been that way for a long time. And it should be given where it's located and it's, it's uh, proximity to both transit and to um, interstate highways. It should, it should look dense and it should be well-developed. We should probably say for our listeners outside the Portland metro area, the Tiger Triangle is the area between 
I-5, 217, and Highway 99W, correct, Mayor? That is correct. That is the Tiger Triangle. And the reason it's called a triangle is because those three highways make it in the shape of a triangle. Nothing. I was going to say, when, when, when you said that, I was like, that, that is a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and precisely why where it got its name, so... So um, one one quick follow up, um, because I actually I, I'm trying to learn a lot more about housing issues. Um, I remember when the state was considering um, the 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 zoning change that they made, I think it was in 2019, which ended up passing some cities um, referenced what you what you just referenced, which is, you know, we want more affordable housing, but we're really concerned about, you know, developing uh, you know, having ha having a lot of um, basically that the local infrastructure doesn't have the capacity to have a bunch more people living in an area that wasn't designed in terms of pipe sizes and those yep. sorts of things. H how have the first few years of this new policy been? Are we finding ways to mitigate those capacity challenges or does that remain a concern? Well, it, it certainly remains a concern. And I, you know, much, much of that legislation passed in 2019, but didn't, didn't require municipalities to make changes till 2021 and 2022. So I see it's not even, you know, hitting reality, but you know, that, that is uh, the way you describe that. It, it really came across to local jurisdictions as kind of an unfunded mandate of sorts. Hmm. You know, it's basically, you must allow this and yeah, it may cause all kinds of uh, both financial and, and uh, operational problems for you, but too bad you'll have to figure it out was essentially the, the response. And, you know, that if you have an entire neighborhood that gets cleaned out and a bunch of fourplexes built where there were single family dwellings and you don't have the right size infrastructure for what you're doing, it's, it's just not going to work. Um, and, and these are things that you can't just say, oh, well, you'll just have to fix that. Um, at least from my perspective, that's not a, that's not an effective approach. So, so in practice, you can no longer tell a developer or a property owner, you can't put a fourplex here. So is the answer basically that you have to raise taxes in some way for, to, to build new infrastructure or what, what is actually going to happen when the rubber meets the road here? Well, what should theoretically happen is a um, a reevaluation of the system development charges, but the infrastructure, you know, the, the problem is that that may cause, we, we already have what I would say are pretty obscene system development charges to build, to build a, let's say you're going to build a single family dwelling, like a single door, uh, you know, in a, in a development project, you know, we're in, in Tigard between Washington County and the city of Tigard, you know, you're pushing $50,000 to, to build a property before you've done any engineering, just in system development charges. Hmm. Uh, that is, that is very challenging for the development community to deal with. And those are the kinds of things that drive our housing challenges. I never, I guess I didn't finish my answers on things we can do for development, developing affordable housing. But one of the things Tigard's done is actually 
waived system development charges for deeply affordable housing, as an example. Mm. But all that means is that the system, we know that the system development charges process is predicated on collecting the money to do the projects you know you're going to have to do to keep the system up. So every time we do that, we're literally just saying we're, we're waiving something, not collecting it, knowing we're still going to have to bear that expense. So well, it sounds like a good idea. It's not like that's really just going to work out in the end, right? I mean, the, there's now projects that aren't funded that will have to be done. Okay, sorry. I said that was my last fall, but I actually do have one more because I think it would be helpful for people to hear about this. Um, Tiger did something. There's, Tiger has done a couple other, other things that I think are interesting models that could be applied elsewhere. Can you tell us a little bit about what Tiger has done with ADUs and cottages and sort of trying to think a little innovatively different than, um, than traditional housing options to create more options for consumers? Yeah, what's interesting is Tiger did most of these things before this, actually all of them, before the state told us we had to, uh, or almost all of them. I think there's some tweaks that we have to make, but they're pretty around the edges. Um, so we've, you know, we've, at the recommendations of our uh, community development leaders and staff, um, what we've tried to do around affordable housing as well is to allow more the construction of more affordable types of um, places to live that maybe are more desirable, less expensive. Cottage clusters is an example, allowing accessory dwelling units or ADUs is another. Uh, the state added in that whole fourplex, basically allowing a fourplex on any lot. That was, I think in Tigard, it was allowed maybe only on corner lot. That may be one of the things that we're having to change. Um, you know, this is not my, I, I'm not an expert in the intricate details, but uh, Tiger had taken most of those actions. And I think even uh, at the time, Speaker Kotek had uh, recognized Tiger in a public forum mm. um, as leading the way on this and, and served really as a model for the state, to be honest. Great, and I'm gonna uh, transition us away from housing, uh, but may maybe that will come back into the conversation. Uh, so, so Mayor, I was looking over your biography before this, and I saw that you had joined uh, as a city councilor uh, to Tigard in 2013, I believe, and then of course, uh, you know, rung up the ladder from there and eventually became mayor. Uh, I'm curious, and again, this is, uh, you know, there's no right answer to this. I just kind of want to hear your riff on this is, uh, you know, in dealing with local issues, uh, have you seen an increase in partisanship or divisiveness? Uh, obviously, those words are a little bit open to interpretation from when you started in the city council to, you know, as you progressed to mayor today, like kind of what, what's been your experience at the local level in terms of dealing with that? I, I would say um, yes, and it, you know, it really did, I mean, to be honest, it really did uh, happen, I would say, after 2015, and I think the change in the presidential uh, office, and, you know, when, in 2016, when I ran for re-election for city council, I started getting very different questions and even the way people approach things, it was sort of like there were litmus tests. You were either in or out. You were either on my team or not on my team. 
And for someone like me, who's not even part of a party, <laughs> pretty, I mean, it, it seemed to me like it was really missing most of what mattered, uh, which is, you know, at the local level, it's things you can literally see and touch. Um, and they're right in front of your face. And, you know, it, it struck me as very different than what we, what I'd seen in prior years. And then that was even more amplified, I would say, by 2018, when I was running for mayor in a race that seemed like it became a little bit more, even though I'm not even part of a party, you know, my main competitor in that race picked sort of a populist slogan that was almost immediately recognized by the community as um, sort of very Trump-like. What, what was the slogan? Uh, Tigered people first. It was an oh. America first riff. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was just an, I mean, that was obviously that had some impact on the campaign, but you know, knocking on, I knocked on 2000 plus doors, you know, part of my campaign strategy involved my campaign knocking on the door of every single three of four and four of four voter. If you're nerdy and know what that means in the political world, you know, that's basically the people who vote all the time. And so my campaign plan involved knocking on every one of those doors. And I personally knocked on about half of them. Um, or just shy of that. And so, you know, that took me, I, I was having, I was not doing door knocking the way the two of you would probably suggest it be done. I would spend a fair bit of time with people at the door if they wanted to. I know the traditional sort of partisan way to do this is, you know, you're hitting another door every two minutes and it's all about numbers and producing widgets. That was not my approach, partly because it's just not my brand, but uh, I also viewed those folks that wanted to have longer conversations and were capable and knowledgeable enough to have them uh, as people that would be, you know, very significant influencers in the community. And so I spent sometimes 30, 45 minutes, even an hour on a couple of occasions on doors. And, and I would just say that 2018 door knocking was quite an experience on that front. I mean, it was everything from, I mean, I can distinctly remember and it, you know, because I did this over months on the weekends and I went to all these doors, I remember where all these people live and I know, you know, <laughs> who lives, who lives in the, behind these doors and what their beliefs are. And, you know, I had, I had everything from, you know, people that were, there were a number of people who it was just sort of like, you know, and actually the question most frequently asked to get the, to like sort of decide where you stood was not like what party are you part of or whatever. It was, who did you, who did you personally vote for in the last election? Because <laughs> I want to know if you're on my team or on the other team. <laughs> Correct. And so for me, you know, that was again, more of a discussion than it was just an answering of that question and particularly given my, you know, approach to politics. But I left many of those doors talking with people who, you know, had maybe reluctantly voted for one candidate or another, which I will also say, 
I thought the choices in 2016 were pretty poor. I mean, Ben, you and I have talked about this before. We don't have our best leaders running for office in our country. And that's true at the state level too. I mean, I think in local government where, you know, I'm a professional doing other things all day, uh, you know, full time allows maybe a different level, but you know, the people running for governor in our state, we're not getting the best people in our state running for governor. I mean, for lots of different reasons, but. Well, we could even, I mean, and if, if, if it's, if, if you believe that's true at the governor level, who's left to run for school board and city council and the county commission or or the state legend tiger. I mean, yeah, yeah, well, that's very questionable. (laughs) Wait a minute. You, well, what you I, cued me up for that one perfectly. Uh, I, 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 but oh, I sorry, go ahead, Mary. Well, I just think it's an important sort of point to make that Ben, I'm, I actually think for the the reasons I've described, I actually think we have, in many cases, um, higher caliber folks in those local um, local positions because they're professionals doing something else, and our leaders doing something else. Um, I think know, if it worked, if it worked that way in practice, I would agree with you. But what you usually end up with are retirees or wealthy people rather than there's a few, you know, there's people like Rep. Rachel Prusak, who is a literal nurse and Rep. Dacia Graber, who's a literal firefighter when they're not, I'm but not talking a, about in the legislature. I'm talking about local. I'm talking like, oh. I'm talking school board, city councils, I see. county commissions, et cetera. Like, I, I think you get, frankly, better uh, quality leadership and experience in some of those roles because of that. Not all, but many. And I would agree the legislature in particular and the way Oregon operates its legislature, I also think is ridiculous and not particularly effective, though I know many many, uh, lobbyists think that 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 statement is terrible because they can't imagine how much more bad legislation (laughs) if they were working full-time at it. But, you know, I I think that they could be more organized and more, and and frankly do a better quality job than like what, like right now we're in this, we're in the short session. Everybody's trying to cram stuff in. There's not enough time for dialogue. It's just get this stuff done you know, is it good or bad, voted in, voted out, you know, oh, all your bills died, even though they're good ideas, we, you know, we just didn't get to them. Like this, this is not a way to govern. This is- It it actually doesn't make sense. It really does not make sense. I mean, no one would design a system to operate like this. It's absurd. It's embarrassing, frankly. And and now, Mayor, I do have have one more follow-up question to my original question, which is, uh, so it sounds like at least you're in uh, you know, uh, that partisanship has gotten worse in some way since since 2016 or 2015, at least you've noticed it practically. But uh, I also want to ask the reverse end of the question is that, uh, do you think it's overblown in some way? And partially I say that is because there's, you know, endless back and forth on Twitter between people. There's tons of articles in right-wing and left-wing media publications about how crazy things are and stuff like that. I mean, like that that New York Times article about Stan was such a perfect thing to me because it was like they're pointing out this mayor in a town of 10,000 people basically saying, no, we're going to defy mask mandates. And it's clearly very well suited to what I would think is their subscriber base being like, oh, these crazy conservative people all over the country are just like denying masks. 
Uh, so I do think that there's a heavy profit motive in it, both on, on the right and the left. I mean, I'm not going to defend all right-wing media in that too, but what I like, do you think it's overblown in some way too, in terms of like uh, what you see on the local level with people working together? Because think at the national level, like all the elites and all the think tank scholars, like it's the worst it's ever been. It's so bad. The country's ripping itself apart. And I do agree with that to some extent, but I also think some of the language is just frankly self-serving and it's a little bit overblown. Uh, curious from your perspective, actually like having worked on these issues locally and things like that. Only a, only a little bit overblown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, if you go back to the premise I started with when you were asking me about my political beliefs, I still believe that most of the time uh, leaders in both parties do the same crap. And there, there is not, when you talk about actions, there is not a particularly significant difference in the ultimate outcomes of the things they take. Now, I may take a little bit of exception of what <laughs> happened in the White House between 2016 and 2020. I, there may be a little, I, I might wanna put a little, a little clip, uh, a, little, um, a little asterisk there about that. But I, I still believe in general that if you're talking about the actual actions people take or don't take, so take Biden's decision right now that he's getting hammered about to not cancel student debt, okay? We're spending billions of dollars on all kinds of stuff, trillions of dollars actually on all kinds of stuff. And this is one single action that wouldn't even cost that much money and would have a like dramatically change the landscape for the trajectory of our country financially and the individuals in it, right? We got a bunch of people, um, some of you perhaps included, who have these, you know, a ball and chain around their ankle that is student debt. And it's impacting everything you can do. It may be preventing you from becoming the next Steve Jobs and starting Apple. I don't know. It very well could be. That's the you know, that's a decision that I look at that and I think, what is this about? And, and literally he's behaving just like um, members of the other party would. And, and it's, um, it's just, I think that it's completely hyped and overblown in the media. And frankly, I look at the trash that my, you know, my parents watch a lot of Fox News they watch that trash and my mother-in-law watches MSNBC and she's watching the opposite trash. It's all garbage. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get it and I don't understand it. And when I, you know, like I'll go, for example, I'll go visit my parents. It's a good thing to do. They live, uh, you know, I have to fly to go visit them. So I go visit my parents and, um, you know, I, I pop, pop in the uh, family room I'm the only one there with my parents and they wanted, this was like in uh, very timely. So this was like in November, early December of last year. Uh, you know, Jason, what do you think about critical race theory? Oh no, no. Should that, should that be taught in schools? And did you give him the, the contact information for your local school board uh, members? So they I wanted to, I, I asked him if they'd seen an inter interview with him, but you know, like my, my comment back to that, and this just explains and I think illustrates Alex's point, is like, I asked them to tell me what critical race theory was. <laughs> they literally couldn't name anything about it. 
like nothing, like literally nothing other than the word. And so, you know, then I, then I, I sort of, I mean, I had to look it up. Like I, I kind of know the basic tenets, but I had to like, look at a trusted reference, like, you know, Dr. Lin and, and like get the tenets. And so I then later on when they didn't know really what I was talking about, I was like, well, don't you, you know, don't you think that you agree with this statement? What about this one? Well, what about that one? I mean, you know what, and literally, you know, when you pose it that way, like they're in favor of critical race theory, um, <laughs> which probably blew their minds. That, well, that was, I that mean, was it, quite a dramatic 360. <laughs> well, it just, I mean, it just doesn't make any, I, I think it really illustrates what's happening in our country. Um, well, and, and, and it, and just, it, it points out that the incentives to Titus's point, the incentives of media and the incentives of politicians are oftentimes to inflame division for their own benefit. And I don't think that's always what happens. And obviously the mayor and I and Alex for different reasons disagree about the value of political parties. But I think it is indisputable that um, the media landscape in particular, but um, and more at the national and the state level, but politicians as well are like, like the Oregon Values and Belief Center by two to one margin says that voters would prefer uh, that their leaders compromise their values in order to get something done rather than stick to their beliefs at the cost of making progress. But our, be but our, our elected leaders' behavior in a lot of cases is actually the exact opposite of what they're saying they want. Um, so I think that's a fascinating case study of what is truly a, a, a large problem. And, and to finish this off with the media landscape, I think the media is absolutely, I mean, the media is, again, in, a, in, the, in the capitalist system we have, their job is to make money. And what they're doing is making money yeah. and selling stuff. And regardless of what level of trash it is, they will continue to sell it because that's what sells best. And that's not necessarily good for our country or good for people. And frankly, I think social media has made that even more complicated and more problematic yes. because it is uh, directly targeted. You can change your messaging. You can manipulate individuals based on thousands of particular preferences or pieces of information that you may have about them and use that to psychologically manipulate them. And I think that's even more disgusting. So um, we're a little over time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna close with our last question, and that is, um, Oregon is Oregon is entering what I consider a transformational period. We're gonna have a new governor, a new speaker, a new Senate president, a bunch of new legislators, um, and I know you are the president of the Metropolitan Mayors Consortium, which represents is it 25 or 26 um, of the Portland metro cities, um, depending on where one of your colleagues is on any given day. Um, but but a, a group of people who I think, like you in general, are probably among the most pragmatic actors in a political system because they're at the local level. Their job is to solve real problems that people can touch and see. So what are, you know, not asking you necessarily to speak for the organization, but I know you talk to mayors all the time. What do what do mayors want to see in the next governor? What 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 are they hoping that the next governor, regardless of political party or no political party, what does Oregon need from the mayor's perspective in our statewide executive leader? 
Well, we act, we definitely need a strong and effective leader. And I, I think we haven't necessarily had that uh, recently. And, and while I think, you know, Governor Kitzhaber ended up not in office for reasons that made sense on some level, you know, what, what has transpired in the years following that has not been as effective a leadership as he provided. And I will say that I think it's a very hard and challenging job to do. And it's particularly hard to find someone who's willing to get, you know, get paid. I don't know what the governor's salary is now, but it's probably around $100,000 or less, you know, to find the most, the best leaders in our state who are willing to work for that, um, you know, is pretty, pretty challenging. I mean, it, it eliminates people like me. I, I don't, I need to take care of my family and, uh, you know, that doesn't work for me. And so I, I would say that the Metropolitan Mayor's Consortium, and I should cr just clarify, I'm the chair of that group. Chair, not president. There isn't a president, but just to be clear, um, you know, I think we're looking for uh, someone that can both lead effectively and also bring people together. We, we need the right conversations happening. The governor needs to be a convener and a, a leader of, and really a, be able to cast a vision that people can get behind that solves the biggest challenges in our state. And we haven't had that. Um, I feel like we've kind of been fumbling through, you know, fumbling through COVID. We got nothing happening on, on houselessness that is regional or statewide. Um, from my perspective, I think what's, what has occurred is now become a, problem for recruiting businesses. It is an embarrassment. Um, it is unhealthy. It is not good for people. And it doesn't have to be this way. Other large metropolitan areas like Salt Lake City, they've solved this problem. They've solved it. It's solvable. We just have to have the will and the organization and the approach. I will also make a plug at the end here and say, this is kind of unrelated to your question, but I think is a really important point. Sure. And that is that our state is terrible at administering programs. Hmm. Uh, I don't really understand why, but whether it's the Affordable Care Act or our unemployment system or the DMV or whatever, but our ability to deliver programs and manage things that we, we actually want to be a state or we wanted to be a state that offered the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, put that out there and was a was a, a model and wanting to participate and get everybody covered. Why, why states that didn't even want to have the Affordable Care Act could administer it 10 times better than our state? I will never understand. But we, we have a serious problem in our state around delivering those kinds of projects, uh, whether it's the healthcare.gov type website that the Affordable Care Act needed and our state exchange or whether it's the DMV or vaccination signups. Yeah. Employment, whatever. We are just, I, I don't even understand the level of incompetence there, but we clearly either don't have the right people. We're not approaching it the right way. We're not paying enough to get the right people. I don't know. But the fact that a bunch of, um, you know, states led by Republican governors who didn't want to be even offering the Affordable Care Act actually had programs that administered it 10 times better than ours should be a complete embarrassment to our state. 
And yet nobody's even talking about this. The fact that our DMV system is still operating on an you know, command prompt DOS-based system is an equal embarrassment. What is that about? <laughs> no, it's 2022. I, well, I was going to say, I think part, I, I agree that it's a, it's a complex problem, but I do think one of the, there was a secretary of state's audit done on one of these programs that basically says we should have invested in new technology decades ago. And somehow, yeah. somehow, I, I don't know the details of this, so I shouldn't wander too far here, but I believe money was actually allocated. It just wasn't spent um, to actually do the conversion to new technology. So certainly, certainly an area for improvement for, for the state. Um, I mean, it's, Washington County wanted to administer a registration fee for vehicles, and literally the way that it the way that it could be taxed or the way the fee could be established and managed had to be based on how the DMV could administer it, not based on how the people actually wanted it. I mean, it's like since when does our IT system drive our decision making? Like that is so backwards; it's not even funny. So. Uh... Uh, final question before we let you go. If folks were listening and they were interested in what you have to say or they want to learn more about what the city of Tigard's doing, what's the best way for them to learn more or get in touch with you? Well, certainly getting in touch with me. My cell phone number, which I'll give now, and my uh, email address are widely available in the Tigard community. I made that part of my uh, plan when running for mayor and I've maintained it while being mayor. My cell phone number is 503 810-0269. People can call or text anytime. And then my email is jason, J-A-S-O-N, at tiger-or.gov. And I am uh, happy to take emails or phone calls anytime. Probably the most accessible elected official in the state of Oregon right there. I was like, I, I don't know if he's actually going to do it. He did it. <laughs> he did it. Uh, Jason, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, happy to have done it. It was very interesting.